Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Three feminist scholars have undertaken an exploration of women characters who share certain characteristics. They're smart, strong, and able to use technology and weaponry to their advantage. Dangerous Dames, representing female-bodied empowerment in post-feminist media, was written by Dr. Hilary A. Jones of Cal State Fresno, Dr. Heather Hundley, a professor in the MTSU Department of Communication Studies, and our guest, Dr. Roberta Chevrette, an assistant professor of communication studies. We'll dig into this subject after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Two former MTSU basketball players are scoring points with people who may feel isolated and marginalized by the COVID-19 pandemic. Jack Rozier and Jimmy Oden are the co-founders of Therapy Unboxed, a sponsor-funded charity that provides pleasant diversions for people in nursing homes, hospices, and homeless shelters in Middle Tennessee and Georgia. Each box delivered by Therapy Unboxed is a treasure trove. Puzzles, arts and crafts, paint and paintbrushes, a stress ball, even electronics such as uh, Nook e-reader or Fitbits, and a little wind-up toy that plays You Are My Sunshine to add a little joy to people's lives. At present, Rosier and Odin deliver the boxes to save shipping charges. Rosier says they practice all the pandemic health protocols that are appropriate with physically vulnerable populations. For more information on Therapy Unboxed and how to make donations or become a sponsor, go to facebook.com forward slash therapy unboxed forward slash or send an email to therapyunboxed at gmail.com. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Roberta, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. For purposes of your book, what exactly is a dangerous dame? When we use the term dangerous dame, we're hoping to capture a couple of meanings with this term. So we are referring to a specific figure that you find in media over and over uh, across the years, and we're looking specifically at contemporary texts from about the past 25 years. So when we talk about dangerous dames, we're talking about the kind of capable uh, woman who wields weapons and uses them to her advantage. Specifically, when we think about dangerous dames, we think of these figures as both threatening to patriarchal systems that they endanger uh, limitations that have been placed on women. But we also find the representations themselves limiting. So there's a particular type of strong woman who's featured. She's typically slender and kicks ass while being very sexy. And we find that also to be a bit dangerous. Yeah, they, as you said, the last 25 years are when most of these characters were created, except Wonder Woman, who was created as a comic strip during World War II. What does it say to you that most of these powerful women were created fairly recently? Well, we see this figure as specifically related to the post-feminist turn, both as a kind of political or cultural idea, as well as a media representation. So following 
feminist activism and women gaining a lot of social and cultural rights in what's often referred to as the second wave era of activism, you then have a lot of media representations beginning around that time with maybe Murphy Brown being an early uh, representation of the career woman. But then in the 90s is really when you start to see Charlie's Angels or these, these kind of the sexy fighting female who enters the media sphere at that time. We do think it's particularly connected to kind of the cultural turns that have led us to where we are. Let's start with Kill Bill, the Quentin Tarantino-directed movies. What is the, as you describe it, the hypermasculine ideology? When we talk about hypermasculine ideologies and how they're portrayed in this film, uh, Tarantino made some pretty deliberate points and media statements about how he hoped this film would be empowering for women and for young teenage girls, he says, specifically. So in this film, you have this array of dangerous names, not just one, but several, this whole cast of women, but the fighting styles that they use are very scripted kind of action movie tropes where they are fighting as if they were men. So you've taken the film that could be a plot driven by men and you've kind of plugged women in and then challenged some of those gendered stereotypes, but also replicated others in the process. So you're creating a a whole new bunch of unrealistic, if you will, uh, approaches to feminine heroism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Kill Bill does a lot of that, the way that it's shot, um, it uses, oh, I don't know if it was still called CG back then or how exactly they do the filming where you have all of these surreal effects. So when we think about these kind of hyper-masculine portrayals of violence uh, and how, as you said, they're not very realistic, um, the amount of blood, for example, that shown in that movie spewing from people's cut off heads and things like that is uh, ridiculous. Volumes and upon volumes, I guess, of fake blood were used in that movie. And so like young women could watch it and ostensibly find themselves feeling empowered, I guess, by um, the fact that they're being foregrounded in the plot, which in itself is revelatory. But I don't think very many people are going to watch it and be like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right. We'll take a break right here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. 
To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Roberta Chevret, an assistant professor of communication studies about the new book, Dangerous Dames, Representing Female-Bodied Empowerment in Post-Feminist Media. How does the Wonder Woman in the movie differ from the Wonder Woman in the comic book and TV depictions of that character? That is a great question. Um, so the chapter that we write about Wonder Woman, we are interested in how Wonder Woman has been used as this feminist icon over the years. And the 2016 release of the movie was seen as something of pretty great cultural significance because we hadn't had this kind of big budget superhero movie starring a woman. Uh, prior to that time. You know, you had Catwoman and some other portrayals, but where women were villains or they were sidekicks and they weren't the central character. So one of the things that's interesting about the 2016 movie is how it changes from previous representations uh, while also staying the same in a lot of ways. So in the comic books, we kind of make some of these connections in the book to trace that history, this iconicity of Wonder Woman. And in the comic books, uh, a lot of focus was placed on using women's nurturing abilities, uh, nurturing uh, and womanly strengths, and how those were necessary for saving the world. Uh, but the comics were also very much produced under the male gaze. So there was a lot of focus on uh, how Wonder Woman was also to be the most beautiful woman that the world had ever seen. Now, in the movie, the casting of uh, Wonder Woman, of course, she is played by an actress who is very stunning, conventionally very stunning. But in a lot of ways, the movie itself and the cinematography of it resists that kind of the camera gaze that lingers on women's bodies, that objectifies them in particular ways. Instead, in almost all of the movies, uh, advertising posters and everything, you're seeing a focus on Wonder Woman as a character, as a complex subject, not just as a body. And you mentioned Catwoman, which starred Halle Berry. Uh, I can't help but remember that her depiction of Catwoman was a total flop at the box office, and I don't think most of the critics liked it either. Do you have any thoughts on why that dangerous dame didn't resonate with people? One of the limitations, so one of the less empowering aspects of the dangerous dames that we look at um, is that we think they're very prescribed by race that a lot of times the popularity of this kind of sexy fighting woman figure is racialized. And we do some direct uh, comparisons actually between portrayals of, of women of different races in the book. But I think that if you think about when Wonder Woman came out, it was Wonder Woman and Black Panther right around the same time. And so here you have these two superhero movies, both of which were badly needed, but one of which features a white woman. 
and one of which did feature uh, two or several uh, dangerous dames, black women, but again, they aren't the central characters. So you have one movie that comes out about black masculinity, an empowering movie in that regard, and you have one woman that comes out kind of featuring white femininity. So we do very much feel that race plays a role in who makes it into these particular types of representations and then the impacts that they have. What do you have to say about Atomic Blonde and Proud Mary? I think they share a chapter in the book. They do. So in this chapter, we deliberately want to take a look at kind of performances of violent femininity. So these characters who are very feminine, who are made up, who are portrayed within the male gaze, um, but they are also portrayed as very violent. And in this chapter, we connect this particular style of representation of these violent, dangerous, and kind of untrust, untrustable women with the historical figure of the femme fatale who you know threatens to upend the lives of the typically male protagonists of the stories so here you have these violent femmes not the band but <laughs> these violent femme characters who are centered in these two different uh movies both of which were released around the same time. And they're both kind of spy assassin type flicks. So within the same genre. And with Atomic Blonde, you have a portrayal of this kind of sexually liberated woman who wields power over men. In Proud Mary, you have a a different portrayal that's impacted by race. So here, Although uh, Taraji Henson is also conventionally attractive, it's not her sexuality isn't what gets emphasized or comes into play in the movie, not in the way that it was in Atomic Blonde. Instead, what drives Henson, uh, well, what drives the character she's playing, Proud Mary, is saving a uh, young black boy. And so Proud Mary is placed into a uh, culturally prescribed role where strong Black women are, get to be depicted as mothers. No matter how hard people try to create female superheroes that uh, project images of empowerment, they all still seem to get trapped in this sort of bubble they can't get out of. Either they have to be unbelievably strong or they have to have a traditional stereotype female motivation like nurturing or they as it was in the case in the old days of you know 60s and 70s tv they could be anything except physically strong because the network censors didn't want them to be projected as butch. There's like a circle of limitations no matter which way they turn. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that you point to here is one of the things we noted about the characters in Atomic Blonde and Proud Mary and Proud Mary is that their conventional beauty and the portrayal of their femininity in some ways makes them more palatable 
right? These kind of threatening and dangerous figures, they become more palatable because they fit into these conventionally prescribed uh, beauty norms. But so that we don't paint out the whole thing to be entirely negative, I would also say that some of the things we try to emphasize or that keep us hopeful as authors of the book is that the more and more you expand these spheres of representation, I think the more we do have power to create an array of diverse bodies, an array of visions of empowerment. While we do find cause to stop and pause and question a little bit exactly how empowering these figures are, I think even in the case of Proud Mary, for example, looking at some of the social media posts and um, Black women who responded saying, finally, finally, we have someone who isn't the five white Hollywood actresses that would typically get cast in a story like this. And so I think those moments of appearance of representation, um, even when they are limited by certain stereotypes, they still fulfill an important role in allowing diverse audiences to see themselves. Time for another break here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The book is Dangerous Dames, Representing Female-Bodied Empowerment in Post-Feminist Media, co-written by Dr. Hillary Jones of Cal State Fresno, Dr. Heather Hundley, a professor in the MTSU Department of Communication Studies, and our guest, Dr. Roberta Chevrette, who is an assistant professor in that same department. Uh, what do you think is the effect that these uh, dangerous dames are having on young girls who watch these movies? Uh, is the uh, woman superhero getting to be as popular with little female children as, say, the, the princess dress-up model uh, that uh, has lasted yay verily all these years? It's sort of morphed from the Barbie doll into... Uh, some kind of fluffy princess fashion, maybe Disney-oriented, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'd have to ask Katie Foss about that. She has two little girls and she studies this sort of thing. <laughs> I think that's a great question. I am, that is one of the arenas in which I personally am hopeful in terms of what positive impacts uh, kind of expanding our spheres of representation and featuring more dangerous dames and women superheroes and 
maybe non-binary superheroes. Maybe we'll get some of those too. Um, I think that this is impactful for young women. I mean, that was some of the response to Wonder Woman, for example, because that was such a big cultural phenomenon. It drew a lot of box office sales and from little girls to elderly women who, you know, were exposed to Wonder Woman early on in their youth. You had these audiences that could see themselves in a movie. I think also significant was the fact that Wonder Woman appealed to young boys. And that when we think about the way that we're cultivating gender norms and gender performances for children, that these expansion of representations, uh, they, they impact everybody. So not just the women and girls. Um, that's also though where we think that some of the limitations in the figures, the way that they do reinscribe gendered stereotypes, that's where kind of heeding some of those limitations and finding ways, I think, to critically consume and critically talk about media with children as they're watching it is another important way to enhance media literacy for everybody. Right. Don't just plop your children down in front of TiVo or the send them off to the movie theater at the mall and just you know do it to get rid of them or to occupy their time and make it part of of their development make the conversation part of their development as human beings why do successful triumphant female heroes in fiction have to be superheroes why what about the heroic things that ordinary women do in 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 everyday life uh police people firefighters uh uh, lawyers who win cases before the Supreme Court, uh, the first responders, the uh, doctors and nurses in the hospital fighting COVID. That's pretty yeah. heroic stuff. It is indeed. I think here the question that you're asking is, I mean, in a lot of ways, the things we portray in media, they don't always represent everything that's happening in society. And so we focus on this particular and pretty powerful stereotype or media figure that's gained a lot of popularity, that the sexy fighting woman. Um, this isn't to say, of course, that there isn't media that foregrounds the heroism of ordinary everyday women. But we do think that that is something that we could see a lot more of. Um, and this ties back to when we were talking for um, about Kill Bill, for example, and how a lot of that portrayal is unrealistic. I think in some ways we fetish we fetishize the role of the fighting sexy dangerous dame in a way that does kind of limit the power of that figure whereas portraying an array of women in their ordinary lives um, performing these extraordinary acts that would really take having a lot more women behind the screens, um, having women's lives <laughs> made ordinary in those same ways that 
you know, what we see on the screens, and especially when we're talking about movies, and four of our six chapters do focus on movies. Well, in Hollywood, movie production is where we see the greatest gender disparity behind the screens um, that still continues. When we look at television and streaming platforms, we see that women have gained more um, access to those spheres compared to Hollywood movies where there's a study put out by the Annenberg School uh, at USC every year. And the representation of women directors over the past few years has usually averaged about 4% with one little peak there and then a peak in um, last year was up a little, which is encouraging. But, you know, if you've got 96% or 90% of directors who are men, well, then a lot of times the visions of women characters and non-binary characters that they portray, they're going to be limited. I was so happy to see on uh, NCIS Los Angeles the use of Academy Award-winning actress Linda Hunt as a member of the cast. She's short. She's not sexy in the traditional conventional sense, but she picked up an Academy Award for portraying a man in the year of living dangerously. So she's accustomed to non-traditional roles. And although it's Chris O'Donnell and LL Cool J who get to do most of the ass kicking in the series, she's the brains behind it all. So I'd like to see more people with non-traditional body types as well become dangerous dames. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I teach a course, Women in the Media, which, which is a women's and gender studies course at MTSU. And one of the things I love about teaching that course is the array of figures that the students will bring to me as well in terms of the figures that they have seen who are empowering. And so what we've often found together in the class, the students and I, is that television, we are seeing a bit more rapid Uh, advancement of different types of characters in television. And in the book, in fact, a couple of the more empowering figures that we look at in the book are in uh, television series, streaming series that feature cyborgs. And it also seems to be important to students and people who are college age. They're starting to, you know, say, well, hey, these women don't represent what it's like to be a heroic woman or a smart woman or a capable woman. And we want to see more. We want to see more people who look different than your slender, sexy, often blonde woman wielding a weapon. Dangerous Dames representing female bodied empowerment in post-feminist media. Dr. Roberta Chevret, thank you for being our guest today on MTSU on the record. Yeah, thank you for having me. We'll be right back. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. 
They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. MTSU has partnered with Tennessee Tech and the University of Tennessee Chattanooga to secure a National Science Foundation grant. MTSU's Data Science Institute will work with the faculty from the other universities to improve workforce development opportunities and enhance collaborations in the region. Here's co-director Dr. Ryan Otter. The idea of connecting and collaborating is no longer a really interesting thing to do. It's essential. And I think one thing the National Science Foundation has been very uh, good at, especially over the last about 15, 20 years, is recognizing underserved populations within uh, the science realm. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.